Let's turn back to the book of Hosea as we began sort of a series last time we spoke on a Wednesday night, and the title of the series is Minor Prophets with Major Messages. And the first of the minor prophets, as we talked about last time, is Hosea. Now, just because we say minor prophets does not mean that they had a minor message. They had very major, critical messages, and they were all very much different characters. And the message tonight, as we consider the second part of the book of Hosea, I was thinking, you know, what exactly does embody the, the prophet Hosea and the life that he lived? Because we think that it was probably close to 90 years that he preached and prophesied. That's a long time. And he probably lived to be about 120 or so. But I'm thinking that a good title for Hosea would be a living example. Because the Lord called him to live out the example of what God experienced with the unfaithfulness of Israel. And of course, we want to glean messages and lessons from this that's pertinent to us today. And I think that it is in terms of the time that we're living in. I think it's very, very relevant to things that we see around us. You know, an Old Testament prophet from all these years ago could actually have a bearing and a presence on what we're dealing with today in our lives and in our nation and so forth. So again, I'm just going to briefly remind you where we got to. Hosea, this living example. Who was he? He was the prophet to Israel, primarily to Israel. He prophesied in the days of Jeroboam. There are two Jeroboams listed in the scripture. This was the second Jeroboam. Many, many years after the first one. And the days of Jeroboam, if you'll read, those days were about 41 years of reigning. So Hosea prophesied through practically all of the reign of the second Jeroboam. Now let me say this as we go back over this little very quick review. If you want to really get something out of this and get something out of it later, one of the reasons I've chosen this is so you can become more familiar with these minor prophets So what I do, and I I think it would be good for each of us to do this for study, is when we read about Hosea, it's important to also read about the historical things that were going on at the time of Hosea. So you can go into Chronicles, and you can go into Kings, and you can read about Jeroboam and the other kings that were alive during this time. You know, in the first verse it says that he prophesied during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, very well-known kings in Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam in the nation of Israel, the northern nation being Israel, the southern nation being Judah. He was primarily for Israel. So go and read these things. It's very interesting when you read the prophecies that he gives and you think about how it ties in to the things that were going on in his time. Now remember these prophecies, a lot of them have a short-term application. That's the way most of the prophets in the Old Testament were. They have a short-term application and then they have a long-term application. You'll see that as we consider some scripture here tonight. Here we have Hosea who probably prophesied for 90 years, primarily to Israel, primarily in the days of Jeroboam or at least for 41 years. And we believe from history that he saw Israel's destruction. He was in the last days of the nation of Israel, the last years. And he was a contemporary, most likely, with Isaiah, Micah, Amos. And also, I believe you you can read 
pretty clearly that he was most likely a contemporary with Jonah, that very well-known prophet and another of the minor prophets, Micah and Amos also being other minor prophets. And it is believed that he was the last prophet to Israel. So he's, he's the last hurrah. He's the last one. Now in chapter 1, the basic teaching of chapter 1 is the spiritual whoredom or unfaithfulness of Israel. And to be a living example, God tells Hosea to go and take a wife of the unfaithful women. And he took the wife, Gomer. And they had three children, you remember? Jezreel was the first one that we know belonged to, was a child of Hosea. The others, it does not appear that they were his children. They were the product of adulterous relationships by his wife. But the first one was Jezreel. You remember, we kind of chuckled about his name. It means it signified the end of Israel. And then there was Loharuhamah which meant no mercy. And then there was lo Ami, which meant not my people. And we joked and said, you know, could you see those kids coming? Well, here comes the end of Israel. Here comes no mercy. Here comes not my people. <laughs> that was a great stigma that was placed on these children. And yet at the end of chapter one, we still have a promise of God having a people. When he says, this is the end of Israel, there'll be no mercy for Israel, and Israel's not my people. <laughs> and yet he says there's a promise of the return of the people of God. And of course, that's a long-term application for the people of God that would be as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the sea. The second chapter gives you the application of the first chapter where we have the prophet telling his children to plead with their mother to be faithful. That's a sad picture, isn't it? Mother, mom, please be faithful to your, your covenant. And then at the end of this sad chapter, we have yet another promise that God would have a people in spite of Israel being unfaithful. Chapter 3, you have that pitiful picture that dominates my thinking. One of the images that dominates my thinking when I think of Hosea is him going to the auction block to buy back his wife who has sold herself into unfaithfulness and bondage. And he buys her back and he tells her, stay at home and be faithful. Okay, and at the end of that chapter, you have an acknowledgement regarding the Messiah and the possible return of Israel. Now, in chapter 4 and on for the rest of the book, all the attention is turned on to Israel, to Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for Israel. Those are synonymous. So when you see Ephraim, it means Israel. When you see Israel in that book, it means Ephraim. And the Lord presents his controversy. He says, I have a controversy with Ephraim, with Israel. He says, there's no truth, no mercy, no knowledge of me. There's swearing, lying, killing, stealing, adultery. <laughs> he says, my people in verse 5 are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, the, the information's there. <laughs> they just don't want it. Verse 17, one of the saddest verses in the Old Testament, I think, and definitely one of the saddest in the book of Hosea. It says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. That's a sad place that a person or a nation would come to where the Lord just says there's no convincing him. There's no amount of telling him. Just leave him alone. That's a sad place. Do you really think that Ephraim in his ignorance knew that it was that time? That's the sad part. Did Samson really know that it was time for him to lose his strength when he did what he did? The Lord just said, leave him alone. That's sad. It makes you wonder. You say, well, is there a modern day application? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, all the things that we have seen in our nation that forsake God, I wonder at what point, I believe God's already said it, leave it alone. Just leave that nation alone because they just, as a whole, just don't care anything about me anymore. 
Leave it alone. They are turned to their idols. And if you don't know what the idols of America are, then we need to spend some, probably need, I probably need to spend some time preaching on that. Chapter 5, this is God's judgment on the priests, on the people, and on the princes of the nation. The whole chapter 5 is about that. And oh yes, he throws Judah in there too. Remember, we're talking about Israel. Israel goes down long before Judah does. But God just throws Judah in there too. He says, and by the way, Judah's got some problems too. And Judah eventually goes down, but many years later. So look at, let's pick up in Hosea, the fifth chapter, as we see God railing upon the priests, the people, and the princes. And also he mentions Judah. And look at verse 13 of Hebrews 5. Look at where Ephraim, Israel, goes to for help. They have Jehovah could have Jehovah in their corner. Jehovah is addressing them. He's not doing that with any other nation on the planet. And look at what Ephraim does. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah, there's Judah, saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound? Is that not indicative of how we, when we recognize, okay, I've got a problem. You know, we're, we will sometimes beat around the bush and just go at great lengths to ignore what the real problem is. <laughs> you know, think about it. If there's a lot of controversy surrounding a situation, you know, if there's a lot of this just drama, 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 well, there's a reason for that. There is something, there is somebody or something in there that's dramatic that just keeps on stirring it up, keeps on stirring it up. You see, and when Israel, when Ephraim and when Judah realized it, they said, oh, okay, well, you know, Let's go to the Assyrian, an enemy nation. The Assyrians were fierce and and mean people. Let's go to the Assyrian for help. Well, all they had to do was look up and go to God. That just seems crazy, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, look at verse 15. It says, I love this verse. God is very consistent in his character. He says, I will go and return to my place till... They acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. I've always had the image of, and I'm not saying God's a little boy, but I've always had the image of little boys playing, you know, and and the the other little boys continue to ignore or be mean or whatever. And the one little boy just says, well, I'm just going to take my toys and go home. (laughs) And that's what God is saying. He's, I'm just going to go to my place till they acknowledge their sin. (laughs) That's a great lesson for us when it comes to repentance. You say, well, I just don't feel like I can just, I'm breaking through to the Lord. I just don't feel the Spirit of God like I want to. Well, it could be that God is being consistent with His own character and saying, until you confess your sin, until you get to the root of the matter, you've blamed everybody else. <laughs> but until you get to the root of, mat- root of the matter, I'm just going to stay where I am. It doesn't mean that person's not His child. Samson was still His child, but Samson refused to acknowledge his sin, and the Lord finally just said, I'm just going to leave you where you are, Samson. You're turned to your idols. And he suffered greatly for that, did he not? All he had to do was turn from his sin. (laughs) The Lord says, I'm going to go my way and go back to my place until they acknowledge their sin. Now look at verse six, chapter 6 and verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord. Now this is the people of God. This is symbolic of the people of God saying, we understand the Lord will not... Draw near to us until we confess our sins. So they say, come and let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. I'm sure you've heard the examples, and I think I've given it before, of how the shepherd who has a 
disobedient and rebellious little sheep. And he will not stay with the flock. You know, he keeps running off. It's like that example that Jesus gives where he has the 90 and 9, but there's one more out there. You know, that was a rebellious little sheep. A lot of times, and I'm not, I'm not very savvy about sheep lore or shepherding or anything like that, but I, I read what I read. And I have read that a shepherd would take a rebellious sheep like that and put him down, you know, on the ground and break his leg so he could not go away. You know, that's a difficult thing to do. I can imagine a shepherd who loved his flock would have a difficult time breaking the leg of that sheep. And then, but, but he didn't just leave him with a leg dangling there and deformed. He would set it and wrap it up and place it and carry that sheep on his shoulders. That's love right there. That's a depth of love that only uh, we can see through the sacrifice of Christ. See? So you parents may think about, you know, my dad used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, son. And I thought the fellow was crazy. Because <laughs> when we got through, he wasn't screaming and crying like I was. <laughs> but it took me having to discipline my children one time. And immediately I thought, oh, I see exactly what dad was talking about. So this is a picture of God's mercy that he would break the leg of Israel and it says he's torn, but he's healed it up. You see? And watch this now, verse 2. You don't think this is an allusion to a greater prophecy? He says, after two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. This we shall know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. And he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud and as the early dew it goeth away. You know, you're as fickle as they come. You're just like a little reed, a little uh, um, weed in the wind that just gets blown left and right. But did you see that illusion right there? Did you see that? where he prophesies of something greater, he says, he will raise us up on the third day. I wonder what that's talking about. He would be three days and three nights in the earth and he would raise back up. That's referring to Jesus. I'll tell you, Hosea is thick with the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Now look at verse 5. This is in Hosea 6 and verse 5. He says, Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. Now watch this in verse 6 and see if you remember this. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You Bible readers, I'm, all of you I'm sure, think about those very words that Jesus said twice to the Pharisees when they looked upon Jesus and they saw him eating in the house of, of Matthew with all the other publicans and other sinners there. And they said, what is your master doing? And Jesus said, go and learn what this means, for I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's from Hosea. And later, when they come back to him complaining again, asking him, why are you doing this? He says, if you had gone and learned what it meant, for I have, would have mercy and not sacrifice, you would know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. What is the relevance right here? Notice what he says. He says, therefore, verse 5, have I hewed them by the prophets. You see, the Lord could have just wiped them out. He could have just said, I'm done with you and just wiped them off the face of the earth. But he said, instead, I chose to be merciful to them. And the mercy that he bestowed upon them was the prophets preaching to them, calling them to return to the Lord. You see that? 
So Jesus sitting there with those sinners is, is a picture of what's going on here. You know, it was a mercy that Jesus would sit there with those sinners and call them to him, and spend time with him. Oh, I tell you, Jesus Christ is the furthest thing from a legalist that you can ever find. A legalist would have nothing to do with those sinners and those folks that are going to bring me down. You see, Christ is so far from the legalist, he's going to spend time with the sinners because he prefers mercy rather than sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, in the days of Hosea, the Lord is saying, I could have wiped you out. I could have just snapped my fingers and you're gone. He says, but I had mercy. I prefer mercy. So I sent my prophets to you to preach to you. Now think about that in the New Testament day, the age that we're living in. The Lord has given the gifts of the men. Some people say, well, why didn't the Lord just wipe this mess out or wipe that mess out or deal with this and just snap his fingers? We know he can, like Zeus, Zeus is not real, but Zeus would send lightning bolts down from heaven. You know, why didn't the Lord just send a lightning bolt and wipe this out? Because the Lord prefers mercy and not sacrifice. The Lord has left us something here to deal with the issues of life, and it is not the prophets of the Old Testament. It's the gifts of the ministry. You see? That's the mercy of God. And you may say, well, you know, that preacher's always getting in my business. He's always reading my mail. He's always meddling. He's always, you know, he preaches grace and then he starts meddling with my life. That is the mercy of God in your life is what that is. And if you're not studying the Word of God, don't ever expect to come to church and say, oh, oh well, the, you know, the preacher preached on what I was studying. If you're not studying the Word of God, that'll never happen. If you're studying the Word of God, I can almost guarantee you that at some point, a preacher that gets in the stand is going to preach on something that you've been studying. So study, study, study. See, that's the mercy of God when you come to church and you've been studying that verse and the preacher preaches on that verse and you rejoice in that. Oh my goodness, that's the message of God to you. See, it's the mercy of God. <laughs> so important that we be merciful. Okay, we got to move along. Notice verse 5 and 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. This gives you the pitiful condition of Israel, how they would not listen to God. Chapter 7, look at verse 9. It says, strangers have devoured Israel, Ephraim, have devoured his strength. And he knoweth it not, yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. Now, 20 years ago, I could not identify with this verse. <laughs> I can totally identify with this verse now because I look in the mirror and I go, whoa, there's one I need to calm under. And, you know, here's another one here. Gray hairs start popping up. Some of you, sit, you young guys are sitting there laughing and go, oh, it's so funny. You're going to think funny in about however many years. You're going to be just like Ephraim. <laughs> Ephraim looks awful <laughs> and he doesn't even know it. I've joked and said, I think it was Sunday morning, about going to court one morning with soap sticking out of my ear. You know, that, I, I felt just like Ephraim that day. Because when I finally discovered that in my ear, I was like, oh my goodness, how many people have seen me <laughs> with soap in my ear? They're going to think I'm about to fall over dead. <laughs> but I walked in there like Ephraim and, you know, your honor this, your honor that. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the jury this, and they're all sitting there going, he doesn't even know he's got soap in his ear. <laughs> Ephraim doesn't even know how pitiful he is. Doesn't even know. And we're just trying to hit some highlights here. Chapter 8, verse 1. 
Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. It just occurred to me that verse 4 right there is absolute bar none proof that God does not set up every ruler on the, on the planet. <laughs> you know, some people say, well, you know, it was ordained to God that this man was to rule, that man was to rule, that woman was to rule. That right there says they set up kings, but it wasn't God setting the king up. They did it of their own devices. You see? He says, I knew it not. They made princes. I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. Thy calf, O Samaria, that hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? <laughs> for, for from Israel was it also the workmen made it. Watch this now. Therefore, it is not God. <laughs> How logical is that? <laughs> the workmen made an idol, and the Lord says, therefore, it's not God. <laughs> You think about all the idols of all the different religions of the world and all of the things that, that people worship in the world, which is not so much as bad, I don't think, as it used to be, especially in the gospel age and the New Testament age. But the Lord says, they made an image of God, therefore it is not me. It is not God. They have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Chapter 8 condemns idolatry. It condemns it. Chapter 9 gives the warnings to Israel. As we hit a few more highlights and close out, chapter 9 and verse 7, it says, The days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad. That means insane. For the multitude of thine iniquity and, and the great hatred. You see, he said, even the people that are trying to be spiritual in those days, they've lost their mind because of their idolatry, because of going away from God. You know, we're living in the day and time that's just like in the Judges, where it says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If a man or a woman decide, well, this is how I want to worship God, or this is how I think we should worship God, or this feels good worshiping God, you can find pretty much, you can kind of, and I hate to use the phrase, pick your poison, but you can pretty much find any flavor of any type of worship that you, that you could conjure up in your mind. Big church, little church, all points in between, you know, big band, little band, all points in between. Men and women just come up with whatever they think out of their mind and say, well, I'll put, you know, God will put his stamp approval upon this. Is that accurate? God is condemning them for just coming up with whatever they have in their mind. You see? So, here's this Hosea saying, you know, come back to the Lord. The days of visitation are at hand. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad. Chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. All of this is bad, isn't it? <laughs> but look down at verse 12. He says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness. This is chapter 10, verse 12. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. You know what fallow ground is? Gr fallow ground is ground that can be plowed and planted, but it's not. You know, it's, you might say, well, it's a, it's a back 40 field that nobody has gotten to that can be planted. And the, what the Lord is saying here, in spite of all this idolatry, in spite of all this lying and deceiving and all the things, and the prophet's a fool and the spiritual man is mad, he's insane. In spite of all that, there's still fallow ground. Isn't God good? 
You look at the condition of our nation today and you think about how much pro-death there is and how much same-sex marriage and all the things that are just so troublesome that are not just anti-Republican or pro-Democrat or anti-Democrat or anti-Republican. This is about anti-the Word of God, you see? That's the standard. It's not the, the political party, Green Party, Tea Party, Republican, Democrat. It is the Word of God is the standard. And you think about how many things in our nation are anti the Word of God. From the school systems that don't, in many places, you can't, you, you'll get fired for breathing the name Jesus. Praise God, we're in a location where that's not the case across the board. But it may be the case across the board one day. Who knows? And yet the Word of God says, there's fallow ground. There's still people of God out there that you can sow the truth to and they'll listen. Every single one of you sitting here tonight, are, y'all are proof of that. See? There's still fallow ground. The Lord says so. He says, you have plowed in wickedness. You have plowed wickedness, verse 13. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. You see, the Lord always gives a little bit of hope or a lot of hope at the end of the chapter. Chapter 11. This speaks of God's former blessings upon Israel and Israel's complete ingratitude. You remember a few Wednesday nights ago, Brother John Morgan spoke to us about an attitude of gratitude. That's so important. 11 and verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. By the way, that's something that's quoted in the New Testament. You can search that one out. And he goes on and speaks about restoration coming. There's hope, see? Chapter 12 is a reproof directly to Judah. And it takes us back in history. And you say, well, I don't know what to study in the Word of God. Well, I've given you a lot that you could study. You could go read the book of Hosea and you can read about the kings that were alive during the time of Hosea. And also here in chapter 12, it says, Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried into Egypt. The Lord also hath the controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings. Will he recompense him? He, Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's talking about Jacob and Esau. Well, there's a whole other world of study right there from the book of Genesis. And by his strength, he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. Anybody know what that's talking about? (laughs) Jacob wrestled with Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus, one of them in the Old Testament. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel. That's where he saw Jacob's ladder. You see all these things that he's calling them back to. Don't you remember? Don't you remember how I delivered Jacob? In verse 12, it talks about how Jacob, this is interesting. It says, Jacob fled into the country of Syria and Israel, Jacob, served for a wife. And for a wife, he kept sheep. What's that talking about? That's talking about him serving 14 years to gain Rachel as a wife. He he served seven and then he was deceived, you know, and got Leah. (laughs) He served another seven years and he got Rachel. You see, verse 10, if you'll back up to verse 10. I'm sure this was a comfort to Hosea when he read this because it says, I have also spoken by the prophets. That's Hosea, okay? And I have multiplied visions and used similitudes. That's a big word, but it just means that he is telling the people why Hosea went and married Gomer. It was a similitude. It was something similar to give you a picture of what God was going through with his nation. See? 
You say, well, that's the ultimate reason right there. If, you, if you're looking for a reason of why God had Hosea go and do that, he wanted a similitude. So it would demonstrate the anguish that God was dealing with with his own nation. Chapter 13 details Ephraim's ingratitude to God. And there's a fatal consequence. Look at verse 13, uh, chap- chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, and when he offended in Baal, he died. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? He died. Well, who in the world can bring somebody back from the dead? Only God. Look at verse 14 of the same chapter. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Anybody know where that comes from? Well, I mean, it comes from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you got 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. He's quoting directly from that. I see some of you nodding. (laughs) You see... He is referring to the fact that Israel, Ephraim, has died because of his idolatry. But God can revive him. God can revive a nation from Egypt to come out in one night. God could revive a nation that would go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon and bring it back out. And that's exactly what he did. And God can revive his spiritual nation. The people of God, the children of Abraham by faith, which are, are you, it's, it's you, it's me, it's all of God's children. He can bring them back. How? He touches their heart and the new birth. That is a resurrection, you see? And you know what? They live forever. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The Lord has defeated death. How? With death. The Lord turned death on its head because the Son of God died and He came back from the dead, you see? God has taken the very tool of Satan, according to Hebrews. He has the power of death. God has taken the very weapon of Satan because he killed Adam. He murdered Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God has taken Satan's greatest weapon, death, and turned it on its head. And through death, has overcome death forever. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You see, there's a sting. It says there's a sting in death. It stings. It hurts. It hurts to lose someone. But the beauty of it is we don't lose them forever. Because God has defeated death. He took death and defeated death. (laughs) If you can get the image of somebody coming at you with a sword or something, it's like God just wrestled that that sword out of the hand of the enemy and stabbed him and killed him with it. (laughs) Kind of like David hitting Goliath with uh, uh, with the stone and Goliath falls to the ground. David goes and gets Goliath's own very large sword and stands up on top of Goliath and cuts his head off. He took the weapon of the enemy. By the way, Goliath is an Old Testament picture of Antichrist. <laughs> David took the very weapon of the enemy and cut his head off with it, and with no head, you're dead, right? <laughs> now, chapter 14, I want to bring my thoughts to a close on Hosea, and we'll move on to another minor prophet next time, Lord willing. You could get kind of down reading a lot of the book of Hosea. You think about Gomer and what he went through, and those children, what they went through. And you think about for 90 years, this poor old fella is prophesying and nobody is turning to the truth. Nobody is repenting. He sees the ultimate destruction of Israel. But thank goodness the Lord knows how we are and the Lord knows what we need. And in chapter 14, he says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. 
Take with your words and turn to the Lord. Say unto Him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips. I believe that is a quote from the book of Hebrews, by the way, chapter 13. The sacrifice of praise. That's the calves of your lips. Asher shall not save us. Sorry, Brother Asher, but you're you're not going to be able to save us. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Horses won't save us. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. This is great stuff, is it not? For a dying nation. This is great stuff. For mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. You see, he's given this beautiful picture of how this horrible, rebellious people went away from him, but he has the power to bring them back. What do you think he's talking about here? Where's Israel today? There's there's no nation of Israel like this nation right here that's spoken of in the Old Testament. Child of grace, you are spiritual Israel today. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. They that dwell under His shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Obviously, Hosea was well acquainted with Lebanon, and obviously the Lord liked what came out of Lebanon, at least at this point. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? (laughs) That is a a statement of repentance right there, where the person comes to the end of themselves and they say, how was I ever hung up on that stuff? How was I ever idolizing those things? What have I to do anymore with idols? I've got the King of Kings. I've got the Lord of Lords. I've got the Ancient of Days. Why do I need idols? Oh, wouldn't it be great for God's children? Every single... You say, you're crazy, brother. Tim, I probably am. But wouldn't it be great for every single one of God's born-again children in our nation to say, what have I need of idols anymore? I just need the Lord. I need the Lord to be in my life. I need to follow the Lord. I need to go to church. I need to enjoy studying the Word of God. And I can put away these idols. What have I need of idols anymore? I have heard Him and observed Him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Now watch verse 9. Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Prudent. And he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. Are you wise? Are you prudent? If you are, then you hear what he's saying to a nation that's long gone from the face of the earth. You hear what he's saying. And it applies to you and me today as spiritual Israel. What have I need of idols any longer when I have the Lord? Then the question is, what are my idols? That's a sermon for another day. But we all have them. We all have our idols. If you say, I don't have an idol, then you've just idolized something because that's just not true. Everybody is prone to idolize something. That is our nature. But there is no end. There is no limit. And it's really not idolizing, but there is no limit to idolizing the Lord Jesus Christ. No limit to it. Have you checked lately online to see how many followers the Lord Jesus Christ has (laughs) compared to the TikTok queens and kings and the Instagram queens and kings? You know, last time I checked, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't have an Instagram account or a TikTok account or a Facebook account. You see, He doesn't deal in those things. 
But if we idolize Him, if we put our emphasis on Him, oh, how blessed we are as a people. Hosea went to his grave and never saw the repentance of Israel. But I often sometimes wonder, maybe in heaven, sometimes the Lord doesn't just pull the curtain back. And he said, look down there, Hosea. They're still preaching that message that you shared thousands of years ago to Israel. I don't know if the Lord does that kind of stuff or not, but that's, it's neat to think about that fellow's in heaven and we're still preaching his message. I hope that this is acquainting you more intimately with the minor prophets and specifically Hosea. Lord willing, if we continue with this thought, then we'll continue to look at the minor prophets in the next one. If there's one or more here tonight that would like to follow the Lord in New Testament baptism, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing some song.